If you brought your Bible today, we'd love for you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off from last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This installment of services, of sermons, is just simply called 1 Corinthians. We're addressing the problems that divide us. So hoping that you'll join us with a spirit of unity as we look at these passages. We're going to get into some hard truths as the weeks unfold, but good. And I hope edifying for us and convicting for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's begin squarely in Scripture, verses 10 through 17 is what I will read and follow with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas. That's Peter, by the way. Or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. So this letter written to a church at Corinth, and what we know about Corinth, we learn a lot about Corinth through history, specifically archaeology. What we learn there is that Corinth was a very important city. It was a port city. It was a vacation destination. It was an economic powerhouse It was a cosmopolitan city that had people that were young and vibrant and rich and upwardly uh, mobile. We learned that there were many statues with inscriptions to uh, scores and scores of Greek and Roman gods. So we learned that from history and archaeology. You can learn from the church at Corinth, the people of Corinth, by reading Acts 18. We're starting 1 Corinthians in in the first chapter, but we learn about it from Acts chapter 18 where Paul came over to this important port city. Uh, from Athens. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila came over from Italy. Uh, Silas and Timothy came over from Macedonia. A man named Apollos showed up and God was doing incredible work as the church bore fruit and it multiplied and scattered and grew there and people were uh, magnified, uh, drawn toward uh, to Jesus Christ. And the church grew and we learned that Paul stayed there from Acts 18. He stayed there for a year and a half and kind of essentially turned things over to a man named Apollo sounds like a good fighter name and Apollos took it and he was well up for the task. Uh, Acts 18 tells us that Paul uh, went to the synagogues and he reasoned uh, with people trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. You see the gospel was not tribal. It was not to be a, a point of division. It was supposed to be big. It was, uh, as the Christmas story says, good news of great joy for all people. And, and I, I love that Paul reasoned in the synagogues with them. He, I watched... Um, a service that friends from Florida told me to watch. A pastor in a church uh, uh, feeling the culture change around them released a statement and they were very maligned and very misunderstood and the pastor uh, got to a point where he said, let's have a town hall meeting. Uh, we'll just have an open mic and anybody can come and talk and he, he stood there and he said, we can go all night and anybody can say anything. Uh, fasten your seatbelts. And I remember a couple of people that uh, thought very differently of, of the church came and stepped into the mic and read a statement, but then they, in, in, they read and in their anger, 
uh, they walked out, and I was, you know, hoping that they would stay. I was wanting the pastor to be able to respond while we were there, and it made me sad to think that we kind of live in that culture. We've gotten further and further into our echo chambers. No matter what side of certain debates that you're on, we just shout, and we, we have our moment in the mic, social media, and we say our say, and we walk away. And there's so little listening and reasoning. But what I loved about the Greek-Roman culture, of course, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to be fascinated with New Testament times. But I just love the culture where there, there were sages and they loved debate and rhetoric and logic and beauty and truth and justice. And they talked about it. And they reasoned together. And Paul did that. He stayed there a year and a half and then he sailed to Syria. He went on to Ephesus, to Caesarea, uh, to Jerusalem and Antioch, back to Ephesus. And that's when he wrote the letter. And he wrote this letter because a woman named Chloe, I, I said last week, she wouldn't be in a gossip. She was writing, uh, she was a, a recent convert to Christianity, her and her whole, whole household, an influential, wealthy woman, and she, she, she hated what was happening in the church. And so Paul writes them this letter, and uh, notice he, he says in this letter, he starts off by saying, in the por portion that we're reading, he starts off by saying, I urge you. And here's the Greek word that, uh, that he's using here. It's a word of, if we can put that on the screen, it's a word of parakaleo. It, it means to come alongside. He's basically saying, I'm not taking you to the woodshed here, but I want to give you some wise counsel. He's saying, hey, come here. He, he's saying, come here. And as the word indicates, he's saying, uh, stand beside me here and let's reason together. Let, let's talk about this. And he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a family meeting. Let me just insert this. I feel the need to say this. If you're going to have a good family, you're going to have to have meetings. Some of you don't realize this. You're like, oh, yeah, you like added your second or third or fourth kid, and you think that home life just effortlessly glides along. But if you're going to, if you're going to like have a budget and plan vacations and deal with things, you're going to need to get in the same room. You're going to need to somebody to say, am I right? Can I get an amen? You're going to need somebody to say, hey, let's have a meeting and let's talk about this. And Susan and I both have some level of regret of not having a dinner conversation or the, the stable times of enough, but the ones we've had, we've never regretted all the kids being with us around the dinner table. Our, our best conversations happen there. You, you have to have meetings. If you're going to be a family, you got to have a leader and you got to have people saying, hey, let's talk about this. So one leader, a godly woman named Chloe, uh, informed Paul who got the church started with these other leaders and said, hey, here's some problems. And Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, not a woodshed whooping, but wise counsel. Hey, let's get on the right path before it's too late. And listen, don't we all need that? We need people to speak into us to say, hey, this is the right path. Jump on the right path before it's too late. And that's what, that's what he's saying here. And listen, there were problems in the church. He says, I urge you not to be divided. Now, when we read this passage, I just let us in it. It's easy to look at this passage in the English and think that what he's saying here is all of a sudden, magically, everybody agree on everything. And if that's what he's saying, look, I'm, I, for one, I'm out of here. Because, I mean, you, you know, you get three or four more people in the room and start talking about things. You're not all going to agree on anything. Unless God, you know, rends the heavens and puts a, you know, some type of a miracle on us, we're not going to be able, we're not all going to agree on everything. And he's not talking about that. And that's why we're here this morning. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. But he says, I urge you not to be divided. The Greek word here, we'll put it up. And I think you'll see where we get a word. We get the word uh, schism from that. Our English word comes from this Greek word. It means to rupture. It means to be torn. We also get our word, our English word, scissors from this Greek word when we're cut. And if you've been ruptured in a relationship, if you've been rejected or betrayed or had conflict and uh, you've canceled each other or been canceled, you know the pain of being cut out. Uh, it happens. I think uh, none of us survive this life without some level of scissors being applied to us in our relationships, and it hurts to get cut. And Paul is writing, 
And he's saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the power of Jesus Christ, he's using the authority of Christ. He doesn't stand on his own authority. Hear me now. I don't stand on my own authority today or any Sunday that I preach, any time when, when we're preaching the word. It's not my own authority. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ or inspired by Jesus Christ. And he's saying, hey, this is so important. I urge you not to pull the scissors out at each other. Uh, I urge you not to cut, not to rupture. And don't we all long for unity? All of us do. Workplaces can be a place where we jockey for position. We vie for supremacy. We push each other out. We look to get to the top. We have things what business writers call turf wars and silos. And these things happen at the office. Uh, incompetent co-workers and bad bosses. And we find the scissors. We find schisms. We find uh, division. And homes oftentimes are not places that are perfectly placid. We have disagreements, and those, I think, are the most painful. Can we get a testimony today? Those are the most painful when a home is broken up, when there's a schism there. And so into this is a beautiful invitation. Even if you're not a Christian or a church person, you're just visiting today, uh, look, we're speaking to you as well, because this is a message all of us, God made us this way, it's innate in you to want love and want unity and just to hate the rupture. So Paul writes, and he says, there's division among you. And so I'm going to urge you to live and think differently. And different living starts with different ways of thinking. Look what he said in 1 Corinthians 3.3. He didn't say this to make them feel good, but he confronted them with this very truth. Because you are still worldly, for since there's envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and, have, and behaving like mere humans? Now Paul's not inviting them or us to take on superhuman powers. But he is saying to us that we are sanctified and called in Jesus Christ. So we ought to live set apart. Um, I have a friend who's a, a Christian writer and thinker and a, a, a really good one. And he says that this new generation uh, is not asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, is it real? And they want to know if Christianity can heal their relationships. They want to know if it's affecting us with peace and joy. They want to know if we're adding to the love in the world or we're making the world a more ruptured place with more and more schisms. And so for you, are you a part of adding to hate and division in the world? Or are you more a part of adding to love and unity? And Paul's writing is saying you're, you're very worldly. So he, he offers them wise counsel. And he says there's a better way. What were their divisions? We hit on a few of these this uh, past week. I'll maybe state them differently uh, today. But there was many divisions. They were arguing over who their favorite preacher was. They were arguing over worship styles and preferences. They were confused about sex and romance. And so... Chapters 1 through 4, we're starting it. He talks to them about their divisions, their schisms, the things that, their rivalries and jealousies. But their confusion on sex and marriage and singleness and divorce, he tackles that in chapters 5 to 7. We'll get there. It's going to be good. And then he talks about how they're... Um, there's acrimony with their freedoms. They were arguing uh, like we've done much of the last couple of years about masks and vaccine mandates and cultural things. And they were arguing over those things. And some people were saying, we're free to do this. And others were saying, no, you're not free to do that. And some were imposing and some were inspiring and some were uh, canceling each other. And he says, hey, there, this acrimony, it needs to go. And so he writes about that uh, in chapters 8 and 9 and even uh, chapter 10. They were confused about their worship assemblies. There were people who were saying, hey, hey, preachers, hey, Paul, Apollo and Paul and Peter and all, hey, you leaders, uh, uh, 
Lydia, Priscilla, Aquila, all you leaders, hey, give me the microphone. Let me speak. If, if the Lord has given me a message, and they, they oftentimes would have some freedom in their public worship assembly, but then it got kind of crazy. Paul writes in a chapter 14, and he talks about how outsiders are coming in, and a church should always welcome outsiders. Outsiders are coming in, and he's, he's, he says to them, y'all, they think y'all have lost your mind. And he says that there's something beautiful he gives, and we try to abide by that here, where we want there to be freedom in worship. But he says a couple of things that are important in Romans, uh, um, 1 Corinthians 14. We'll get there, but I just want to drop it today. But he, he says um, uh, that God is not the author of confusion. And so they were saying to some of their leaders, hey, you're not giving me the microphone. You're not letting me speak freely. You're not letting us all talk or pray at once. And Paul's like, hey, there's some people speaking in tongues and some people prophesying, but there must be peace and order because God is not the author of confusion. Uh, if a trumpet blows an uncertain sound, can people go into battle? Romans 14, or 1 Corinthians 14. And he says, hey, listen, a leader must lead with clarity. Some of us are scratching our heads in the church of some famous pastors who don't seem to be leading with clarity, who are muddling the water and watering down God's word. A, a, a pastor uh, needs, a church needs to be led by pastors, a plurality of leaders who are clear in their direction. And our worship assembly should be clear. And so he's writing them to say, here's what a worship service should look like. And they, uh, it's not a, you know, order of worship. Lauren and I talk about worship on Sunday uh, at the beginning of the week, and she'll send me an order of worship, and we'll talk about it. It's not a, you know, this happens this minute type of thing, but it is the collection of the Lord, of the offering. It's uh, how spiritual gifts are to be used, how we're to greet one another. Uh, preaching is not really talked about. They just, they describe what happened, and they preached a long time in the early church. So y'all just send me a thank you note whenever you want to. We don't go too long here, do we? No, don't answer. But anyway, so, so he's writing to them, and he's saying that you're confused on all these areas, but look, I want you to pursue peace with each other. I want you to pursue the unity that's, a, that's just so desperately needed. You're, you're worldly. You haven't grown up. And by the way, that's the goal. Can I just say, if you've been coming to church, if you are a Christian or a person of faith, the goal is maturity. The goal is growth in love. Remember Ephesians 4, God gives us, he gives us apologists and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers not so they would do all the work, but that you would be equipped to do the work. And it says that you would mature in your faith, that you would grow up and you wouldn't be so easily tossed to and fro. When you're growing in your faith, when you're grounded in the word, you're not so easily tossed. Can I just say the groundedness that God gives me in his truth, I don't freak out over everything in our culture. I'm disturbed by things, but I really need to lead the church and not, you know, judge the world. But honestly, when you're grounded in the Word, and so I want that for you. I want you to grow. I want you to mature. I want you to not be so tossed about with every wind and wave, as it says um, in the Scripture. Tim Keller says there's two kinds of problems in a church. One he calls living problems. And living problems, he describes it this way. Living problems are when you get people in a church, and they're not all alike. They don't all think alike. They don't all talk alike. They don't all vote alike. Uh, they don't all look alike. Did I say that? They don't, they don't have all the same tastes and preferences. Uh, they're different. In fact, they're a, they're a church with all these living problems. They got messy people. They got some new converts. They got some skeptics and doubters. They got outsiders coming in wanting to be a part, or at least they're curious. Uh, in my time of leading Fondren in 11 years and leading in the church uh, many more years than that, I, I have loved it when outsiders have come in. And it's always funny, a few years ago when we got the new gym floor, uh, on, uh, we, I was playing basketball one night with some new guys in our church, and I noticed quickly running up and down the court, they were um, cussing, just pro, you know, saying profanities. And honestly, I kind of, I kind of liked it, in the sense. I mean, I, I, we don't want to let you cuss around here, but um, 
but I kind of liked it because they were new and they just didn't know any better. And it, it was messy. And I, I remember thinking, you know, I, I didn't pray God make them stop cussing. But I was like, man, I, God, I love this and I, I want them to grow. I want them to grow. I, I had a guy come to a small group a couple years ago. Uh, he dropped some cuss words in his prayers. Uh, he dropped an F-bomb in a prayer. And I'm not saying, I'm not, I don't mean fondant. He just dropped it right there, right there in a prayer. I'm like, okay, okay. There's living problems. It's when new people are coming in, when there's people that are messy or rubbing up against each other, when we all don't look alike, we don't all see the world alike. That's living problems in a church. But Keller says the second kind of problems are dying problems. When everybody looks alike, everybody's known each other for a while, no outsiders are ever coming in, and everybody's kind of in the same socioeconomic strata everybody's known each other for a while and let me just ask you now, the 930 got this right I want to ask you to answer out loud what kind of church do you want to be a problem with the church with living problems or dying problems can, can, can we say that together like some living problems so in other words we're going to have to struggle for unity we're going to have to work for it we're going to have to seek understanding uh, this isn't just going to naturally come now interestingly in Ephesians it says to maintain the unity of the spirit so the spirit brings unity so when we're baptized into the body of christ we say welcome brother and sister did you notice with ella she turns 10 on tuesday but i called her i baptize you now my sister in christ because she's now a sister in jesus christ that's what he does and living church problems we welcome in new people and we celebrate life change and uh, old crusty people around young people and people who voted for this guy or next to people that voted for that guy we're all trying to figure this thing out and you drop a, like, a, you know, you've been in a small group and a cultural thing comes up and boom. Woo! I mean, you're praying for Jesus right then and there. I mean, it's like, here it is. But I, I pray that we would be a church with living church problems. And that we would have some outsiders that would see our love and unity and, and they would want in. So I want to present to you a bit of an outline in this portion that we read. There's some things that are hard to misunderstand, so I want to help explain it to you. That is part of my job. Here's a three-point outline of this section. Um, They were divided over their quarrels, verse 11. They were divided over their cliques, uh, verse 12. And they were um, similarly divided over their conceit, which was connected to their cliques and their quarrels. It's all related there. But you see that they were divided over these very things so in the church um, their worship assembly free expression versus formalities the gifts that were being used or not being used the jealousy that was among them when certain people didn't have uh, certain gifts or misunderstood those gifts all these things uh, they were fighting over and Paul is writing and saying the way of love and unity is the way and I want to I want to teach you the value of and here's what I want to say unity and harmony and community is fragile but it's so valuable and it's worth our fight it's so worth our fight and I if I can I got away with it at 9 30 I'll try to do it here but uh, the last couple of years have disappointed me in Christians whose culture and politics have been so big and whose Christ has been so small. So at Fondren Church, I need to be clear, we have a very high view of the Bible. And our goal is not to water it down. Our goal is not to avoid volatile issues. 
Our goal is to point people to the truth because it's the way that leads to life. If it ever seems like it's about hatred or intolerance, can I just tell you, it's not. It's about love and pointing you to life. And I am one beggar telling other beggars, beggars where to find bread. And so that's the spirit of our place. But we have a very high view of the Bible. But we also say the only thing that counts at Fonder Church is people finding faith and expressing it in love. That comes from the Bible, Galatians 5, 6b. But the only thing, so that's the unifying element for us to say, hey, we want you to find Jesus. We may not all look alike. We may all think differently and vote differently. But we want to ultimately point people to Jesus Christ because in him you're going to find life. And oh, by the way, when you find Jesus, express it in love. And so that's part of growing up, that's part of maturing, and that's the end game of it all. Uh, we'll get there, 1 Corinthians 13. Some of you can quote it. You've heard it in enough weddings, but we'll get there when we talk about love in the 13th chapter. But the end goal is that we would find faith in Jesus Christ and that we would express it in love. So there were, there were quarrels among them, and there were cliques. You'll see in verse 12, it says there that um, some of you follow Paul, some of you follow Paulus, some of you Cephas, or as I said, that's Peter with the uh, double name. And then there was a group going, oh, we, we just follow Jesus. And you can see me kind of mocking them because they deserve it. When you read it on the surface, um, it, it sounds like, you know, they're the, the good group. It sounds like that's who you want to be with. Like, I don't want to follow, you know, a man. I want to follow Jesus. But let me call your attention to what Ephesians 2.20 says, because this is really important, because Jesus endorses the local church. He, it says it's built on the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So it's all about Jesus, but God raises up leaders. So it matters to have Pauls and Apollos and Peters, and it matters to have Priscilla's and uh, other leaders in the church. It's really important, and it, they were the, the group that was probably most proud. Oh, we just, you know, we don't follow those guys. We just follow Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever had a, a favorite preacher but uh, it's easy uh, to do that in churches back then and in our day as well. And so he's pointing us to, hey, let's, let's don't be uh, divided over our preachers. Let's point ultimately people to, to Christ. But there's nothing wrong in liking someone in the way that they deliver the word. That can be, that can be a good and healthy thing. There's the apostles and the prophets. But the foundation, the cornerstone is ultimately, um, is ultimately Jesus. So these cliques. Um, and it's interesting, Paul says, um, he says, I don't, um, I don't baptize, I, I preach the gospel. And he baptized the household of Stephanus, but he doesn't baptize. He said, I don't remember if I baptized certain people. Now, we baptize in the 930 service, and we baptize in the 11 o'clock service, and we celebrate baptism. And um, the testimony today may be for you to take that step of obedience in baptism. Baptism is a good thing, and of course, Paul celebrates it. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that the people were divided into cliques and there was a lot of conceit that people were attaching themselves to certain celebrities in the church, which is never a good thing. If you've been following any church scandals in our days, um, God's cleaning house. And so when people have built, uh, they've promoted their brand, extended their platform, made it about themselves, uh, they're tumbling, they're falling. It's not a good thing. There's plenty of rises and falls of fill in the blanks happening in the American church in our day. But Paul is saying here, listen, in Corinth, they found in the ruins, they found, um, in fact, it was a lot of us put together. There was a theater that seated some 14,000 people, big crowd anywhere, anytime, any day. But that was especially big back then, 14,000 seat theater where people would come. And what would they do at the theater? Mostly... Mostly they would hear the sages or what they called sophist 
S-O-P-H-I-S-T-S. I see somebody shaking their head. You're following me. A sophist was a skilled orator. A sophist was someone who was a celebrity back in their day. We follow celebrities like they're famous for being famous, you know, and we don't even really know why, but we love their lifestyle. We love the way they look and what they post. And we just, we're, we're a little more shallow, can I say, in our day than, than back then. And they were more about oratory. They were more about ideas. They were more about discovering the big meaning of life. Even universities, we've specialized and segmented. You know, you, you become a freshman, immediately you know what you're going to study. And you isolate and you go into this specific field. But universities were built on the universal ideas. And so philosophy was a really, really big thing. These skilled orators would dazzle people with their verbal dexterity. They would win applause and standing ovations. They would become celebrities. And then people were saying, hey, this guy and this guy, you can look at some of the people, uh, Plutarch and Flavonius and all that. Statues were built in their honor. They were big deals. And so into this celebrity-infused culture where people were attaching themselves to great people, Paul is saying, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. No one is building a statue in my honor. In fact, I'm a tent maker. I preach and I also make tents. And when we as a church promote certain people, when we as a church, uh, we, we empty the cross of its meaning if we're arguing about our pride and our conceit and our greatness. And so in the midst of these quarrels, in the midst of these cliques, in the midst of these uh, points of conceit, the message for us is follow Jesus humbly. If you want to be great, you must serve. If you want to get ahead, you must go last. If you want to find freedom, you must forgive. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. And we'll get into this next week, but the power of the cross can be foolishness to the world. And it's turned on its head. And young people, any people, but young people, the, the quicker you learn that in life, the happier you'll be. And the way of following Jesus is different. So here's before uh, we end with what unity is. I want us to quickly say two things about what unity is not. Unity is not sameness. I've already kind of touched on that. But it, it's not sameness. Remember what scripture says in Revelation. After the first service, a friend of mine, Jay, came and talked to me. And he said, man, I've been reading through Revelation. And I'm having a hard time understanding it. I'm like, good luck with that. A lot of allegory, the dragons and the candle stands and all that stuff. But um. In Revelation 7, 9, it says something beautiful I bet a lot of you have heard. And in the, in the midst of this beauty, it says that there's a new heaven and a new earth. And God is building that. And don't you long for that when you see this world of amber alerts and terrorist threats and school shootings and Chinese spy balloons. Don't you long for a new heaven and a new earth. And God gives us a real good descriptor of what that community is going to be like. And so we need to begin practicing it now. God says that, and if you take notes, write the word every. And draw a line and under every, right, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be there. And then in Ephesians 4, it says one. Write the word one if you're a note taker and draw a line. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And so every tribe, every tongue, every nation, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are to be a very diverse and different people. That's the kingdom that God is building. But hold on a second. One Lord, one faith, one, bapt one baptism. God did not decide to send an educator to reform the world or a military person 
to protect the world or a motivational speaker to help you turn over a new year and a new you. He sent a substitute for our sin who died for us, who lived a life we could not live and died a death that we deserve to die, and he rose again. That's what he sent. So it's one Lord and one faith and one baptism. We have a very distinct message, and sometimes it seems like foolishness to the world. But it's the only thing that leads to life. And so unity is not sameness. Here's another thing. Unity is not sweetness a couple years back um, a guy I know that I had lunch with uh, sent me uh, something he called the office and um, had a little trouble reaching me I I think I'm typically accessible but anyway I was busy and so he kind of you know pouted a little bit and then when he got with me he gave me a document and he wanted me to sign it he wanted he wanted me to put my name in Fondren Church to say we believe this and we support this and a I really appreciated him. I appreciated uh, their endeavors in the city of Jackson. But as I began to read it, I think that's why it took me a while. Just, I, you know, I've got plenty to read. There's a lot of a stack of papers. And as I got into it, I'm like, oh, like that, like that, like that. Good, 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 good. And then there was some stuff in there that I, I couldn't sign. I couldn't sign it. I didn't sign it. Because uh, it's contrary to what God says. And it's important for me to help lead you into God's truth. And that means it's not all about sweetness. It's not all about acquiescing to what's happening in our culture. We stand on truth. And listen, it's a little bit different and it's a little bit weird. But the church has always been a little bit different and a little bit weird. And for some of you, you need to hear this. You can get so far into fundamentalism on the right or progressivism on the left that you end up stripping yourself of the gospel. And so we need to guard it. So we're not here to water down the word and we're not here to avoid volatile issues. But unity means we tackle big problems, but we we need to agree. We need to have some agreement. We need to have some agreement on some important things. You say, well, preacher, what do we, even that, we can argue over that, right? And we do. And so I want to end with some really important scriptures. I'm going to throw some stuff up here and I want you to follow with me uh, real quickly. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come What time? The end times. When people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 2 Thessalonians 2.3 Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. 2 Peter 2.1 But there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Matthew 24.24 Jesus himself for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect. Even to those chosen. 2 Timothy 2.17 Their teaching will spread like gangrene. I should say kutsu because we're in Mississippi. Um, Their teaching will spread like kutsu. It will grow. It's very important for us to be anchored in the truth of God's word. And it really, really matters. And I don't know if you notice this, but our culture is drifting. And there's um, a lot of darkness. And uh, There's social engineering going on. And there's radical ideologies. 
And this stuff is whack. And it's being spoken with eloquence. And a lot of really highly educated people are being deceived. But the gospel is a simple and beautiful message that brings life. And we, I'm telling you, we will stand on God's truth. And we won't avoid volatile things, but we'll seek unity. So as Lauren and the team come up, I had a conversation this week with a, with a young man, and he's um, disappointed with his pastor and disillusioned with his church. So he asked me, when do you leave a church? And I told him what I want to tell you, because I hate the rupture, I hate the scissors, I hate the schisms. But I told him, uh, somebody played a note too early. I told him, that, that would be me. Uh, I told this young man, live in such a way that if you leave, it will not feel like turning a channel on your television. It'll feel like walking away from a family. All right? Thank you. I thought it was good too. I hope more than one person who's married to one of our pastors picked up on that so you know churches have preferences like there's Bible study part you know the you know the people in first Corinthians were like oh, we're Jesus yeah and they exist they're the proud people they're like the some people have a preference for deep Bible teaching I, I get emails from them they want more Old Testament cross references and more Greek tense verb analysis in the sermons but they're not interested that much in love or spiritual growth they just love learning and some people are experiential people they want goosebumps. They want an altar full of weeping people. And if the service doesn't possess that every Sunday, they feel like they've been cheaped out. And some people are really missionary-minded. They have a saying, it's not in the Bible, but it sounds pretty good. Don't judge a church by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. They want everybody to live sent and go to the world. We, we want that. They're social justice people, man. Let's live, let's love in the community. It doesn't matter anything about anybody. Let's lock arms with anybody, anything, say, do anything. Let's love our city. And there is um, give me diversity or give me die people. Well, the stage needs to look like a rainbow. And listen, I better say this fast because I'm looking at some of your faces. I'm getting in trouble. But uh, all those are good things. All of them. All of them are good things. And a gospel-loving church should be pursuing all of them. Like you have your preferences and that's a good thing. Who, who am I to, to chip away at that? Like you have your preferences. The problem is, is when you walk around with your preferences with a spirit of disunity. And so three things to say what unity is. It's a harmony of attitude. It's an agreement on essentials. And it's single-mindedness of purpose. So if you've joined our church, you'll know. If you haven't, you want to consider it. We'll, we'll be clear on some things at membership. If, if I'm not clear on here, but there's certain things we believe about who Jesus Christ is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God but through Him. And there's no book like the Bible. All scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training, for reproof, so that we may be perfect in righteousness. Nobody's perfect yet. We're far from it. We're a living church with living church problems. But we need to learn to love and reason together. And then there's single-mindedness of purpose. Here's what I love. I know I've got fundamentalist among me and I've got progressive among me. 
and y'all know what I believe. I mean, I, I sent a message this summer about the sanctity of life, and man, you guys were like, woo, that's my pastor, and some of you came at me. But what I love is that we're walking together, and we can have some differences. We just, we just need to agree on the essentials of what really, really does matter. And I love that our church, we're not as racially diverse as I hope and pray we'll be one day, but we're pretty politically diverse and um, our socioeconomics and our worldviews and ideas. But I love that we can lock arms like we can on serve day in March and just say, hey, who are you? What's your name? What's your story? What language are you speaking? How do you see the world? What's happening in your life? Let's serve together because the only thing that matters is faith, expressing itself in love, a harmony of attitude, agreement on essentials, and single-mindedness of purpose. Would you stand with me? Father, bless this time of invitation, of prayer and singing. Would you be honored and would we be shaped and formed? We're all about to walk out those doors in just a matter of minutes and the culture will grab us and throw ideas and the media will try to disciple us and it'll give us uh, some truth and it'll perpetuate falsehoods. And I pray that you help us to be anchored in the truth, to know the essentials of what it means to follow Jesus, to have a harmony of attitude and a single-mindedness of purpose. Jesus, we pray, amen. You come today, if we can pray over you, for you, the altar is open, and we'll take a few minutes to sing. Come today, it'd be an honor to, um, to pray for you. Altar's open.